Years ago, I read a book entitled The One Minute Manager, and that was first published in 1982. I believe that over 13 million copies have been sold. It was written by someone called Ken Blanchard. And according to Ken's website, he's written or co-authored over 65 books with cumulative sales of 22 million copies in 47 languages. And in 2005, he was inducted into Amazon's Hall of Fame as one of the top selling authors of all time. So guess what? Yes, Ken Blanchard is today's guest on episode 61 of the Training Business Podcast. And welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hi, welcome to the show. My name is Mark Garrett Hayes, and this is the podcast for you as a training business professional, training business owner, a learning and development consultant, a coaching business owner, perhaps you're a freelance trainer. Or perhaps you're listening to the show because your curiosity is piqued about the idea of leaving the corporate world and starting your own training business. Fantastic. If that is the case, welcome to the show. The premise of this show, every week it's the same thing, is to help you to start to grow and to scale your training business, irrespective of where you are on this journey. It's my passion and my privilege to have an episode of this show every single Thursday for you. And with this in mind, I'd like to speak specifically about today's guest, Ken Blanchard, whom I mentioned before the music. If you're familiar with titles such as The One Minute Manager, Everyone's a Coach, Helping People at Work, well, these are the books from today's guest, Ken Blanchard. And books aside, Ken has a long list of awards for his contributions to leadership and management training. He's also CSO or Chief Spiritual Officer of the highly successful Ken Blanchard Companies, founded together with his wife Margie back in 1979. Now that's not all. For those of you familiar with the model of situational leadership, and that's something I was talking about with a client as recently as two weeks ago, well, Ken Blanchard created situational leadership too, something very, very important in the as a milestone in learning and development. So I've been looking forward to this episode today, and it's my enormous pr- pleasure and privilege to have one of the true giants of learning and people development on this show. Ken is speaking to us live today from California, so let's go and meet Ken. Hi, Ken, and welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be with you, Mark. How are you today? I'm very well. And uh, you're right now in California. Yes, I'm in San Diego. We were teaching at the University of Massachusetts, and we came for one year sabbatical leave here 43 years ago. <laughs> and you stayed. <laughs> well, I said summer in Massachusetts is two weeks of bad skating. <laughs> oh, well, lucky you. I can't say the same about the weather here in Ireland, but um, at least someone has sunshine. That's right. It's great. Well, look, um, I, I'm privileged to have you on the show. You're recognized as a world authority in leadership and management training. How did you come to be so passionate about developing people? Well, I was really fortunate. I had a pretty amazing father, Mark. Uh, he uh, grew up at West Point, where the uh, military academy is, and and uh, he was sat in the back when Douglas MacArthur gave his graduation speech, and he just loved it there. And, and when he got out of high school, he wanted to go to school there. His father said, son, I think you should go away to school. So he said, well, if I can't go to 
West Point, I'll go to the Naval Academy. And so we went to Annapolis and graduated in 1924. And in 1924, they didn't think they needed naval officers because we had just finished World War One. And so at the end of his senior cruise, uh, they released him. And so January 25, he entered Harvard uh, Business School and majored in finance and then went down to Wall Street and he built his career. And he was about to become a vice president of National City Bank. And he came home in 1940. I was one year old. And he said to my mom, well, I quit today. And she said, you did what? He says, yeah, I quit. She said, to do what? He said, I rejoined the Navy. She said, you got to be crazy. He said, well, didn't I tell you when we got married, if the country ever got in trouble, I thought I owed it something. Hitler's crazy and the Japanese will be in this soon. And so that was that part of those great American uh, European people who just would stand up for, for what was right. And uh, so he quit a major job, became a second lieutenant, and they put him in Brooklyn Navy Yard and then Pearl Harbor happened and it looked like he was going to stay there because he was 40 years old with no experience. And so that wasn't my father's uh, style. And one of his classmates that stayed in was a top guy at the Bureau of Personnel for the Navy in Washington. So he called him and he said, John, what do you got for an old fart uh, in the afternoon? <laughs> he said, Ted, let me look into it. He called back a couple of days later. He said, Ted, all I have with a guy with your experience is a suicide group going into the Marshall Islands. And of course, he didn't tell my mother. He said, you, you got your man. They gave him 12 LCIs, these landing craft infantry that take in the Marines and the frogmen in those days, which are the SEALs today. And and he, he led led into the beaches to Saipan, Kwajalein, Anahuitak, Tinian. 70% of his men were killed or wounded. And somehow he survived and came home. I got a picture of me at five years old saluting him at the railroad station because he had been gone for two and a half years you know he couldn't commute in those days and uh so uh i had an interesting upbringing uh, mark i went to a 95 percent jewish elementary school and on jewish holidays they put us all in one room and then we merged into junior high school with a 90 95 percent africa african-american uh junior high school high, uh, elementary school and and uh so uh I was a basketball player and I was bright, so I won all the elections as the compromise candidate. And uh, so I came home <laughs> and won the president of the seventh grade. And I, my father was there and, and I told him, I'm the president of the class. And my father said, well, Ken, this begins your leadership training. He said, now that you're president, don't ever use your position. He said, great leaders are great because, because people trust and respect them, not because they have power. And so uh, he really got me interested in leadership, you know, so I became the vice president of the junior high and then the president. And then I went into high school and became the president of sophomore class, vice president of school, president of the school. And then both cases, the students asked me to give the graduation speech. <clears throat> so I just got a lot of early opportunities as a young man in leadership with my father guiding the, the way. He said it was Ken, it was a naive and false front to say in the military, it's my way or the highway. He said, sure, in battle, somebody's got to call the shots. But if you generally act like you're a big deal and your your people are nothing, he said, your men will shoot you before the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> it was with my dad that I really got passionate and excited about developing people because he was a tremendous people developer. Every year, he had a reunion of all of the, the heads of his ships who were still alive and they would come for the weekend and just tell me what an amazing leader he was and 
and they were all wanting to tell me about leadership. <laughs> and was it called leadership in those days? Was that kind of a, because it's quite a buzzword these days, you hear leadership, leadership, leadership. Was that actually the term used uh, back then? Uh, I, I think it was, or you know, I'm not sure what, what else they would have called it, you know, whether you're commanding officer or <laughs> something like that, but, uh, man, you know, management, but I, I think it was more leadership. So what then brought you to the point where you decided to build a business around that, around leadership and, and bring the message to other people? We went to uh, California on a one-year sabbatical leave and uh, because uh, Paul Hersey had moved there. Hersey and I had met at Ohio University earlier, and, and that's where we started the whole uh, situational leadership uh, concept. And uh, we wrote a textbook together called Management of Organizational Behavior Utilizing Human Resources. I think in its, it's in its eighth or tenth edition now and still sells uh, uh, today. And uh, so uh, I went out there for one year and, and uh, uh, it was really interesting. Have you ever heard of the Young Presidents Organization? I have, yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. yeah. When we got out there, my best friend and my wife's uh, his wife was my wife's best friend. She called Margie and she said, Peter just got in this great organization called YPO and they treat women well. They can go to the conferences and all. And so I talked to Peter about it. He got them to agree let, to let me run a seminar in San Francisco in December 1976 uh, for uh, uh, 25 to 30 YPO presidents. And they got so excited about it, they invited the guy who was the chairman. They have these two universities a year, which are worldwide, where five or 600 presidents and their spouses will come for a week, and they have faculty that come. And so they got me invited to go to the YPO, uh, National International University in, in Honolulu, and I did a s session. They could choose between three or four sessions every hour and a half, and the first uh, day, I got about 200. I did a session on different strokes for different folks on on uh, situational leadership, and uh, about 200 came. And then Wednesday, I did one of the carrot or the stick on what makes people tick, and about six or 700 came. And then on Friday, I did one called So You Want to Change Something, and the whole conference came. They had to widen the whole thing, and they said, well, you won. You were the most popular resource. What are you going to do at the end of the year? We said, we're we're going back to the university. They said, no, you're not. What are we going to do? So you're going to start your own company. And we said, how are we going to do that? We can't even balance our own checkbook, you know. And they said, well, we'll help you. And it was amazing. Mark, five presidents of companies, one from uh, Portland, Oregon, one from San Diego, one from Mexico City, one from Pennsylvania, one from uh, Illinois, all volunteered to be our advisory board, flew to San Diego, took us away for a three-day weekend uh had all the paperwork and helped us set up the company and we'll we'll advise you and keep you busy and and also ended up in 1979 we ended up starting uh at that time was called blanchard training and development and um uh so we didn't anticipate this but uh all of a sudden we got all this kind of business and then in 1980 the year later i run into spencer johnson at a cocktail party by a woman by the name of Adelaide Brie, who wrote Visualizations Directing the Movies of Your Mind. She was the first one to do self-healing of, of cancer. And and she decided to have a party for lawyer uh, for writers in San Diego. 
and I uh, uh, qualified because I had this textbook. And so Spencer was a children's book writer. He wrote this whole series of called Value Tales, you know, the, the value of courage, the story of Helen Keller, the value of believing in yourself, you know, the story of Jackie Robinson, you know. And, and so my wife met him first and hand carried him over and uh, said, you two ought to write a children's book for managers. They won't read anything else. <laughs> and so uh, he was working on a one-minute scolding with a psychiatrist on how to discipline kids. And I invited him to a seminar I was doing the, the next week in town. And he sat in the back and laughed. He came running up at the end. He said, uh, forget parenting. Let's do the one-minute manager. You know, and so uh, we added to one minute scolding, we call one minute reprimand. And then I talked about all good performance starts with clear goals. So one minute goal setting started. And then once the goals are clear, you know, of all the things I've ever taught, the most important one, I think, is wandering around and catching people doing things right and giving them a one minute praising. So we had the three secrets. And since uh, he was a children's book writer and I'm a storyteller, we decided to write a parable about it. We didn't know anything about it you know and and so uh suddenly uh, uh we finished the book uh you know between the beginning of november and the uh end of december as we were going to the rose bowl we had copies for people to read and they said this is fabulous and so i said spencer let's go to new york and get a publisher he said no he said well, we're gonna prove a track record he said they'll beat us up and take all the money so we self-published it and sold twenty thousand copies that year with no advertising, with through YPO and and all that. So when we went to New York, they were all excited. Uh, and it came out in, uh, in uh, September 1982, and we were on the Today Show on Labor Day. And it went on the bestseller list the next week and never left for two or three years. And so, uh, duh, suddenly we're best-selling authors. And uh, so that's uh, how it all, all began. It's a long Sir. <laughs> and sorry, and that's given then rise to a whole series of books. Um, how, how you how do you feel about the the idea of writing books? Because um, nowadays you can go into a bookshop and and there's a book on almost every subject. But, but was there a, a kind of a a trend or some kind of theme of of self publishing back then? Because I think it must have been quite quite revolutionary to have published a book uh, back then. Probably was. Then we then when we went to a publisher from there. Yeah, I think it was. And we found a guy who had a print print operation, uh, Harry Paul, who was willing to, you know, publish it for us and print it up. And so it was uh, it was really quite quite unusual. And uh, so uh, it was interesting for me to end up being a writer because when I was in graduate school, I, I initially wanted to be a dean of students, you know, and student personnel and and uh, my professor said, well, that's good if you're going to be at a university. You should be a university because you can't write. And I later found out that they could understand it, and that was kind of confusing to them. You know, they like it at universities to be a little more complicated. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so uh, when I ran into Hersey, uh, you know, uh, I was out there to, uh, as assistant to the dean of the business school at Ohio University. It was my first job after. Uh, my doctorate because you know i should be an administrator when i got there the dean said ken i think it's great you're going to be my assistant dean and all but i want you to teach a course i want all my deans to teach and i had never thought about teaching because if you don't publish you don't perish and 
So he said, I don't care about that. So he put me in Hershey's department. He had just arrived as the head of the management department. I had done my doctoral dissertation on Fred Fiedler, who was the first situational leadership theorist. So I knew the field. And after about two weeks of teaching, I came home and said to my wife, Margie, this is what I ought to be doing. You know, I love this. She said, well, what about the writing? You know, you're going to have, I said, we'll figure something out. So I heard Hersey taught a great leadership course. And I came up to him in, in December, 1966 and said, Paul, can I sit in your course next semester? And he said, yeah. He said, uh, no, if you want to take it for credit, you're welcome. You know, and he walked away. I thought that was interesting. I had a, I had a PhD and he didn't, and he wants me to take it for credit. So uh, I asked Margie and she said, well, is he any good? I said, he's supposed to be great. She said, well, get your ego out of the way and take a stand for it. <laughs> I had to convince the registrar to let me in. Uh, and uh, so- With uh, a PhD. <laughs> the papers in June 67, Paul comes into my office and he said, Ken, uh, I've been teaching leadership for 10 years. I think I'm better than anybody. But when it comes to writing, I'm a nervous wreck. And I've been looking for a good writer like you to- co-author a textbook with me. Would you do it? And I said, we ought to be quite a great team. You're not supposed to be able to write, and, and I can't, you know, and so let's do it. So uh, we didn't know any big words, and we wrote this management of organizational behavior, and, and it really took off. So I went to the dean, and I said, I quit. I got a textbook coming out. I'm not going to be administrator. He said, you can't quit. I said, why not? He said, because I was going to fire you, because he said, you're a lousy administrator. <laughs> which I was, and I still am. And so we agreed it was kind of a photo finish. Uh, so, you know, it's funny, uh, Mark. I think life is what happens to you when you're planning on doing something else. And I, people ask me, how do you decide what to do in life? I said, keep your head up and keep on looking around. And if things come your way, go, hmm, that's interesting. I don't know if that's the direction I should go. Uh, but uh, don't get locked in and so focused on one position that you don't even look for opportunities. Back to situational leadership itself, because I was having a conversation as recently as two weeks ago, and that came up, situational leadership. And I'm thinking to myself, how come many models, many concepts have faded away, but this one is still very much relevant today? Why do you think that's the case? Well, it's interesting. Our version is called SL2. And I think because it's common sense organized. You know, I mean, a lot of people say, why are your books so so popular? I said, because they're common sense organized. You know, I mean, you look at the woman manager, you know, you say, well, to be a good manager, what do you need to do? Well, I believe you look for the 20% that'll give you the 80%. Well, it's not all that complicated. You ought to be clear on goals. And once goals are clear, wander around and catch them doing something right, praise them. If they, if they don't perform well, then give them a, we, we wrote it into give them a one minute redirect, you know. <laughs> and uh, so situational leadership, one of the things that was happening when Paul and I were working together initially, there was a lot of people that said that there was one best leadership style, you know, and it usually was a, a kind of a participative style and all that. And yet, you know, it, it didn't make any sense to us, you know, because if somebody doesn't know what they're doing to have them participate, uh, and setting goals and all that kind of thing. This didn't make any any sense, you know. And so we started playing around with uh, the concept of different strokes for different folks. And then we realized it's not only different strokes for different folks, it's different strokes for the same folks 
on different parts of their jobs. So, I mean, on your job, you might really be good at the financial part of your job, but not so good at the people management. Well, I can delegate to you on the finance, but in people management, I maybe ought to give you a directing or a coaching leadership style. And so it's, uh, you know, and, and people even today who go through an SL2 program, they go, God, I wish I had this earlier in my career. I mean, this makes such sense, you know. And so it's common sense organized, I think. And so I don't, uh, I'm not a, you know, big intellectual thinker. I'm just kind of a down to earth guy. And so I'm always looking for that. And so like I've written over 60 books and only two by myself, one on golf, everybody helped my golf game. So I didn't know who to write that with. And then one my spiritual journey, but I love to learn from other people and build it up. So even when I'm writing my books about leadership, you know, with our company people, I always have, you know, some of our people work with me, but you know, I, I uh, ran into uh, Truett Cathy who founded Chick-fil-A. It was one of the amazing companies over here. One of the most generous guys I ever met. So I went to him and said, we want to write a book on generosity. You know, and then I get a call when I write a book with Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote the power of positive thinking. I said, is he, is he still alive? You know, my, my parents went to his church when I was born and he was 86 years old when I, I met him and we ended up writing the power of ethical management because he really and other people were concerned about unethical behavior. This is, you know, back quite a few years. And I think they're concerned about it today too. And so it's just been fun. Well, let's focus on the training business itself because um, Ken Blanchard Companies is highly successful. Tell us a little about the structure of the business and, and the mission. Well, our mission is that someday everyone, everywhere, will be impacted essentially by an effective a leader, an SL2 leader, a one-minute manager, what have you, and that uh, leadership will be a major uh, difference in, in organizations. And, and, that, uh, and so uh, uh, we have really four or five parts of our business. One, we sell books and training materials, so that's one aspect. We have an 800 number and all then another part of our business is we will train companies, people, their own managers, and we've done that in a lot of companies and, and you know, work through with our trainers. And then another part of our business is some companies say, well, we don't want your trainers. We'd like our trainers to do it. Can you train them how to do it? So we have a trainer for trainers program. And then we also have an intellect, a, an international program. We're in about, you know, 25 nations. We're we have an office in London and in Toronto and quite a presence over in Singapore and Hong Kong and India and, you know, all, all those different places. And so uh, um, it's really is kind of fun. I, I think that, uh, Mark, that, that leadership is a transformational journey uh, that begins with self-leadership. I, I've noticed, I wonder if you have, that most of the leaders – that are really problems in organizations have high control needs. When you really get to know them, they're scared little kids inside. Uh, they aren't comfortable with who they are. So the way they cover that up is by control needs, you know? And uh, so uh, we start off all of our programs if somebody really buys into our philosophy with teaching people about themselves and helping them write their own mission statement and what are their values and, and uh, what are the, what are the skills that they have and what, what areas are they uh, a little weak on that they ought to gather some people around that can 
fill those voids and and all. And so from self-leadership, we move to one-on-one leadership, which is where the SL2 comes in. And that's how do you build trusting relationship with somebody. We have a whole program on, on trust too. And then we move to team leadership, which is how do you develop a sense of community. And then finally, organizational leadership, which is how do you uh, build a culture. And uh, the situational kind of model kind of plays all the way across uh, those because I noticed like at the organizational level, you get people that come in and don't know what they're doing. You know, like Carly Fiore with, uh, you know, Hewlett Packard comes in, here's well-run company and she comes in with a directing leadership style you know and just kind of busts up the whole culture versus alan malali who goes into ford and said they got problems here but i don't think it's a one-man job you know and he started to work with teams of people to turn the, the thing around you know in a in a way that could really involve people and so uh, we we kind of help people take a look at how do you enter an organization you know, first you you don't go in and start doing stuff. You go in and try to find out what's going on and what's working and what isn't, you know, and who's the people you can count on and and how do you move from there and, and start your appropriate leadership style. Because, you know, eventually in a high-performing organization, you know, Mulally always felt, you know, towards the end, you know, he could leave because, you know, they, all, they had it. It was part of the culture, you know, and um, – you can go to a delegating leadership style, but it's a journey from directing to coaching to supporting to, to delegating. And But sometimes you come in like a Hewlett Packard, you should come in in a style three supporting and, you know, because they were already running a great organization. So, so you've, you've built all those programs over the years to meet those uh, various needs in the marketplace. And around you, you have a fine team of people, including uh, Margie, your wife, Tom, Howard, Debbie. What, what's it been like as an entrepreneur for a moment, building an international training business with, you know, global offices in places like London, Canada, et cetera, and managing all those people? Well, it's really been an, an interesting journey, you know, and I was smart enough um, when we started to make Margie the president, you know, she had, she had a PhD in communications, you know, and and uh, she's really good at that kind of thing. And so I kind of came, became the head cheerleader. I was initially the chairman but i never particularly liked that title so now i'm i'm called the chief spiritual officer you know and and i I leave a morning message for everybody every day and and um what i do is i you know in those morning messages i you know praise people that are doing great uh jobs we're doing i talk about some of the things that are going well and and, uh, then i try to leave some inspirational message you know like i got a letter from a guy from New Zealand who I'd sent, met in an airport and sent him some books. And he wrote me and he said, Ken, you know, the business you're in is teaching people the power of love rather than the love of power. And I thought, wow. I like that. I like that. I think servant leadership is is uh, love in action. And people say, well, that's gushy love. No, I'm not talking about that kind of love. I'm just talking about realization that I think we're here on earth to serve, not to be served. And as leaders, if we realize it's not all about us, but it's about the people around us that can make things happen, we have a whole different philosophy, you know. And uh, when I talk about servant leadership initially, people think I'm talking about the inmates running the prison or trying to please everybody. But 
there's really two aspects of servant leadership. The leadership aspect is vision and direction, values and goals, you know, and because leadership is about going somewhere. And that's the responsibility of the hierarchy to make sure that that's done. So in your organization, if people don't know what business you're in, what what your picture of the future is, if you do a good job, where you're going and what the values are going to drive your journey and the goals, shame on you. It doesn't mean you don't involve people, but it's your responsibility to make sure it's clear. And then once the goals are clear, now you philosophically <coughs> turn the traditional pyramid upside down and move to the servant part of servant leadership. And now you work for your people and your people work for their people who eventually work for the customers in the whole pyramid is turned upside down and that's where the real action uh, is but it's a it's a twofold thing with the leadership role and the servant role you mentioned customers there briefly which kinds of organizations can do you feel are right for your brand and, and how would you qualify them in or out well we we our biggest customers are, are of course from bigger organizations you know with a lot of managers and that's a that's ideal for us but also because we were involved with Young Presidents Organization, which are entrepreneurs. We also work with some more small entrepreneurial businesses and all. And uh, but our biggest customers are, you know, large, uh, large customers. You know, like uh, like we worked for Lowe's with for years, and you know, working with Southwest Airlines and you know companies like that that uh, Disney and you know that that could really. Uh, use our kind of uh, of training so it's uh, it's it's really been been kind of fun and uh, so uh, because I think people think realize today more than ever that leadership's important and then when they kind of see the the journey uh, they go whoa I hadn't thought of it that way you know but of course uh, SL2 and the women are managers are the ones that often draws people to us and they want to start there and you know, and we will do some training there, but then we try to convince them that to follow up. The biggest problem in leadership training, Mark, I've seen is that people keep on looking for the next new flavor. That's right. They do. They don't follow up what they just taught their people, you know. I mean, how many diets does it take to lose weight? You know, only one you stick to, you know. <laughs> true. Very true. Um, do you feel there were any opportunities over the years which you, you walked away from and, and in retrospect you feel that was the right decision along that way of, of, of building, along the path of building up the, the Ken Blanchard companies? The biggest one we'll walk away from is when the top managers don't want to get involved. You know, I mean, if, if they don't want to get involved, I mean, we know in the long run the thing's not going to last. Now, I mean, we might have might do some training and, and things like that, but they're not going to become a huge customer until uh, there's there's a vision and direction from the top that this is really important, you know. I mean, so, uh, you know, with Southwest Airline, with Herb Keller and Colleen Barrett when they were running the place and all, and, and uh, you know, the, to them it was really important, you know, the, training people and all that kind of thing. And the, the Nordstrom brothers, you know, I've some work with them, you know, and, and Wegman is a great grocery chain. I've, I've worked with them, but the, always the, the, those leaders were, were really key people and involved, you know, and, and uh, when I was working with, with Disney, Michael Eisner was kind of running the thing. And, and uh, so that was involved. So I, that's where it really 
does. It's just not a, it's, a lot of people look at leadership training as a fringe benefit <laughs> rather than as something that can make your organization more effective and more profitable. I mean, John, I just came out with a book about a year or so ago called Servant Leadership in Action, and I got about 45 of the key people in the field, Simon Sinek and Brene Brown and Marshall Goldsmith and Patrick Lencioni and all these people, you know, about what they think of servant leadership. And John Maxwell wrote the forward, and he said, servant leadership's the only way that I know that you can get both great results and great human satisfaction. That's what I have found because the great results come from the vision and direction are really clear and the human satisfaction comes from people realizing that their managers are there for them, not walking around with their arms crossed, you know, with a scowling face evaluating and judging them. They're rolling their sleeves up and saying, how can I help? You know, you mentioned Michael Eisner there, Ken, and I used to work for Disney and uh, a couple of years ago, well, in fact, many years ago and in Florida. And at the time, Michael Eisner was CEO. And in fact, that's where I did my first train the trainer. Speaking of that, you have a T4T or training for trainers program, which prepares trainers to deliver SL2 in uh, organizations around the world. People attend a two-day workshop and a subsequent three-day program. What do you look for, for people listening to this, who might be interested in joining the Blanchard Trainers Network? What do you look for in terms of qualities, experience, knowledge, skills, in prospective trainers? Well, I loved when I worked with Norman Vincent Peale. He said, if you stop learning, lie down and let him throw the dirt on you. You know, because you're already dead. dead. So the the biggest thing you look for is people who are excited about learning, you know, and don't come in to uh, see what you're doing so they can prove what they're already doing is, is righter than yours, but say, you know, I'd really be interested in learning your whole approach and see where it fits in, you know, and and that's that openness to an excitement for, for learning, you know. And so uh, we, we run T4Ts in companies also. We also run them out here. And when we have one, we always invite all the people over to our house uh, for a late afternoon for, for drinks and talking to Margie and I. And it's just really fun to see these people's eyes just all lit up and exciting about, about learning and about going, wow, this is really pretty powerful stuff. And if you were screening people out, and this is perhaps a difficult question, um, you must have to make a decision, you know, what people are right for us, what people connect with our brand, what people get the the, myth, the mission and the ethos of, of the Ken Blanchard companies. What, if you had to say there's a kind of a list of qualities you look for in those people, what is it, if we could define that? One of the questions I always ask people is, tell me about your old friends. And if they that they look at me and say, you know, what do you, what do you mean by old friends? I mean, people you grew up with and all. And if they don't have any old friends, then I don't want them working for us, you know. Uh, because why wouldn't you want to keep in touch with people who are your friends? And so one of the things in our company, when somebody walks in the front door that you've hired, I tell them, if you don't feel a chemical difference in your body because you're excited about seeing them, why the hell did you hire them? There's enough jerks in the world. We don't need them working for us. And uh, so we also give a $400 bonus to any of our employees who recommend a friend or a relative for a, a position that we have available and we hire them. And so we, our place is full of family and friends, you know what I mean? Because, you know, Margie and I, of course, are in the 
the company, but uh, our daughter runs our marketing department. Our son works closely with product development, and he's one of a major uh, trainers. Margie's brother, who was born when she was a freshman at Cornell, he's 18 years younger. He's our, our CEO. Uh, and uh, Scott, our son's uh, wife, is the head of our coaching business. And we have a family council that we've had for almost 25 years now. We meet once a quarter with an outside consultant with our family members. Uh, and the goal is to make sure there's no issues out there that's going to goof up our family and our business, you know, because one of the reasons I think a lot of family businesses don't work is they don't talk. And somebody said, you know, what's the key to running a great organization? You know, communicate, 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 you know, talk. Uh, and uh, so uh, we uh, we try to talk. We we started a, a, another big push on customer service initiative that my son's leading and had an all-company meeting yesterday and had the, the, the tr training room was just loaded and people around the country and the world were online and, and uh, you know, we just uh, always try to do that once a month. I mean, once a quarter we have a meeting where we uh, uh, open the books and show them exactly where we are in terms of, you know, profits and all those kind of things. And so, because we want them on our team. And I remember 2008 when we realized we were going to be 15 to 20 percent below our sales projections when the thing went in the toilet we had a we were heading a, a big company celebration meeting for something else and we took the first day and brought an outside consultant and broke everybody into teams uh you know the 300 plus people and half of the groups their job was to identify areas where we could uh, increase revenues and the other groups are areas we could cut costs. And it was just amazing the stuff that came out of that, including let's take salary cuts, you know, and let's do this and that, you know, because if people think that they're part of the team, they're also a willing one to help and give their best thinking. You also have um, something called the, the Blanchard Institute. Now, that's not something I'm familiar with. Could you tell us, me and the listeners, exactly what the work of the Blanchard Institute is and, and how and why it's important to you and to Margie? Well, that's something that, you know, uh, Margie and I are not in major day-to-day -day leadership positions in the company anymore. And she really started the Blanchard Institute, which is, really came off of the Blanchard Foundation, which uh, all the family members put money into it. And uh, the Institute was set up uh, as a nonprofit uh, because Margie thinks that a lot of people are concerned about their kids, you know, what's, what's happening to them, and they don't know how to communicate with them, and the kids aren't all. And so we have a, developed a student self-leadership program off of some of our self-leadership stuff, and it is really powerful because it, it teaches the young people to be responsible for the condition they're in rather than complaining, you know, rather, because they think, you know, the only people with power are, teachers, parents, and, you know, uh, principals and, and those kind of people. But we can show them that, that they really have power. They have personal power. If they're really good at, at technology stuff, they got technical power and, and all. In fact, we take them through a journey from um, starting with them taking a look at, uh, first of all, assume constraints. You know, what are the messages that people have given them about what they can or can't do? Uh, that they have believed over the, over their lives, you know. I mean, so 
I mean, for a while, I thought I couldn't write, you know, because that's what they all told me, you know. <laughs> and uh, and it's so, not true, obviously. That's right, and uh, and so we we deal with that. Then we move to points of power, help them identify that, and then the final thing we plug in the SL two, the situational approach uh, to uh, we call it collaborating for success, and so if they have a goal and objective that they have, they analyze their own development level and can recognize what kind of help I need. And then they go and, you know, ask for the help that they need, you know. And uh, we convince them that if you ask somebody to help you with something and they say, no, they haven't turned you down, they just turned down your proposition. Eleanor Roosevelt one time said, nobody can make you feel inferior without your permission, you know. <laughs> and, uh, so that uh, these young people, you know, they'll, they'll go to the school and say, you know, here's something that I, I'm really struggling for and I really could use a tutor or I could use this. And so, uh, you know, how do you get the help that you, that you need? And so now uh, we did a lot, a lot of this for all of our people's kids. And now we're getting companies that are saying, God, can, can you guys train our people's kids, you know? And uh, we don't want to make money on it. We want to you know, cover our expenses, but uh, how can we help? And so that's the real focus right now in the, the Blanchard Institute is uh, student self-leadership. Because those people, of course, are the, the future, aren't they? They're the future of the country. Yes. And so we have a program for elementary school, junior high school, high school, and college kids. We start them as young as we can get them. Speaking of the future, what do you think are the trends that uh, are just around the corner because um, you have a, a long perspective over how education, how training and development has evolved over several decades. What do you think is around the corner with your wisdom and experience? I think the big change, Mark, is that in the past, uh, leadership has been looked at as a top-down kind of thing, you know, and you look for the hierarchy to tell you what to do and all that kind of thing. And and even the original woman of manager, the manager was the one who really worked on setting the goals and the manager decided who to praise and who to redirect and all. And I think right now when we're dealing with young people, they want what they call side-by-side leadership, not top-down. In other words, they don't want your job, but they want to be considered a, a member of the team and that you'll consult with them and, and, and involve them in decision making and all. And I, I just really like that. I think that's a trend going forward, side by side leadership and then top down. And, and I think that the, the top down stuff in the long run uh, is going to get you in trouble because uh, your people will leave and, it, you know, and, and uh, people will sit around waiting for a boss to tell them what to do. And, and the, the great companies are fast and flexible. And the reason they're that is because people can bring their brains to work, you know. And <laughs> I, one of my favorite stories, you know, I, uh, you probably know I talk about the difference between ducks and eagles, you know. And, and you know, do you, have you heard me talk about that? No, no, try me. Try me. I think it's good for the listeners to hear that story as well. It's, it's, uh, if you've got a problem as a customer and you go to most organizations and you tell them the problem – you're talking to a duck and they go, quack, quack, it's our policy. Quack, quack, I just work here. Quack, quack, I didn't make the freaking rules. Quack, quack, you want to talk to my supervisor. Quack, 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 quack. You know, and they don't think that they can make a decision. 
where if you go to a company that really is led by servant leaders, you're talking to an eagle, you know? And so like a friend a while back went to get a special kind of perfume for his wife at Nordstrom's and the woman there said, we don't sell that type of perfume here, but I know where I can get it in the mall. How long are you going to be in the store? Is it about a half hour? She says, well, good. I'll go get the perfume from you in that other store and I'll bring it back and gift wrap it and have it ready for you when you leave. And he couldn't believe it. When he's leaving, this gal had left the store, went and got it, gift wrapped it and charged him the same amount of money she paid for it in the other store. In other words, Nordstrom didn't make any profit, but what did they make? <laughs> a lifelong customer, a lifelong customer. Flashcombs customers tell stories mm. about you. And my favorite Duck Eagle story is that uh, when I travel, Mark, I put this thing around my neck and I've done it for a number of years. I, I just uh, had my the 59th anniversary of my 21st birthday. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> so, I put this thing around my neck when I travel. I call it my geezer pouch. And, and in it, I put my ticket, my itinerary, you know, uh, you know, things to take notes from. And I got it in my geezer pouch, you know, and, and uh, my passport and all that kind of stuff that I need. So one day I loaded up my geezer pouch and I left it on my desk by mistake. And I'm pulling in the airport in San Diego to go on a trip. And I realized I got no official identification this was about two years after 9-11 so a little uptight about that kind of thing so the only book i've ever had my picture on the cover is i wrote a book with don shula the old miami dolphins football coach and they took our picture in miami stadium and i ran into the bookstore at the airport and luckily they had a copy and so i i bought it and the first first airline i had to go to luckily was southwest airlines and i'm checking a bag out in the street and you guys say could i see your identification i said i'm sorry i don't have a license or a passport how's this i held up the book and he looked at it and he shouts out this man knows don shula <laughs> first class you know and they're kind of high-fiving me out in the street you know <laughs> and there's an older guy there and he said i know the security guards inside they come with me i think i can get you through with your book and he guided me all the way through talking to these people you know so the next day I had to fly somewhere else and uh, it wasn't Southwest. And so I showed my book out there and all of a sudden the duck doo-doo started to fly. The guy went, quack, you'll have to go to the ticket counter. And I showed the book of the gal ticket counter. She says, quack, you'll have to talk to my supervisor. We call the supervisory duck the head mallard because they just quack at a higher level. And <laughs> first I'm talking to a guy in a suit and a tie. I mean, I'm up several level, level, levels. Uh, and um, finally convince him that I'm legitimate and he lets me on the airline. But I mean, I had to go through all these gyrations, you know, because the place is full of ducks uh, where the great organizations like Nordstrom's and Southwest and Disney and all, the people can make decisions uh, right there. Yeah, you remind me, in fact, of a book I read a while ago called uh, Delivering Happiness by Tony, if I can pronounce his last name correctly, uh, Sie, and he's the CEO and founder of Zappos. And the book is all about how he can empower people at the customer frontline, at the coalface, to actually make decisions to remember people's birthdays and send them thank yous and all that kind of stuff that many people at the higher levels of an organization often don't, that kind of command and control structure. They don't see that the value in that. But yet that is exactly what makes companies fast and flexible. It's the ability to to react in the moment to customers' needs. What's the name of that book? Uh, it's Delivering Happiness by Tony. I'll spend the la spell the last name. It's H-S-I-E-H. Uh, -E 
Delivering Happiness by Tony Sie. Yeah. That's a really great, great uh, title, too, because you create that kind of uh, thing. My son always says the problem in most organizations is that at the dinner table, they talk about what's happening at work, but it's not very positive, you know. And <laughs> is it what, what your goal is, is to have people telling good news stories at night, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, the, if you make your people happy and see, I, I think, uh, Mark, the great organizations realize that their number one customer is their people. If you train your people, take care of your people, love on your people, then they go out of their way to take your, to your second most important customers, uh, the people who use your products and services, and they make them, you know, uh, raving fans with legendary service, you know, and they get so excited, they become part of your sales force. That's right. That, that takes care of the third most important uh, customer, the, the owners. And now we also are adding a fourth one. You know, what are you doing in the community? Because most of the great organizations are also great community members. Yeah, com- uh, um, corporate social responsibility, I think, is the buzzword these days. But yeah, you're right. Um, Ken, I'm, I'm conscious of your time. I, I'd just like to thank you. It's been a privilege having you on the show. I'd like to thank you for your time today in appearing on the Training Business Podcast. And of course, to your team, including Vicky, uh, who made today's episode possible. Thanks so much for being on the show. Well, good. It's a real joy. And I hope that... Uh, some people got some good ideas out of it. Just to just know that life is really a special occasion, particularly when you reach out to the people in your family and at work and your community in a way that you're there to serve rather than be served. Ken, thanks so much for being our guest on the show this week. I really enjoyed all the stories and all the background you gave to some of the books and concepts that I've been familiar with from having followed you for a number of years. I'd like to thank you for your time and of course to thank Vicky and the rest of the team at the Can Blanchard Companies for making today's interview possible. And of course, to you, our listeners, thanks to you for tuning in again this week for the episode, because this podcast and every episode of the podcast would not be the same without your listenership and without your support. We'd love you to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts because this helps us to promote the show and to attract the kinds of guests of the caliber of people like Ken and others who want to help you with their experience on your entrepreneurial journey. You can check out the podcast every single Thursday on Apple Podcasts. I've stopped calling it iTunes, old habits die hard. You can also find the podcast on Stitcher, on Spotify, and I believe on several other audio or podcast platforms. If you want to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you and love to find out what you think would be a great episode at some point in the near future. We'd love some feedback as to what you think of the episode so far and are all the time anxious or rather delighted to hear from you with suggestions for future content and programming. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram. So check us out there, join us, follow us and give us some updates and feedback as to what you think would be valuable for you and your training, coaching and learning and development consultancy. Please keep an eye out for competitions. We will be offering some signed copies of some amazing books in future episodes of the podcast. Keep an eye out for that, as well as for announcements on social media. You guessed it, there is a fresh episode next Thursday waiting for you. So until that time, when we meet again, have a great week. Bye for now. Thanks 
once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.